in the 1950s, before psychotropic drugs were introduced, the methods in which mental illnesses were treated were extremely limited and often, after a long period of treatment, became very expensive. But when a new method was born in the United States of America, which involved a quick operation that could seemingly cure the patient's problems, the government quickly adopted the procedure and declared it as the solution to mental health issues. This new wonder treatment was called a lobotomy. A lobotomy in combination with sterilization would become the authorities' method of choice in their attempt to control society's so-called less desirable citizens. This is Nordic True Crime. During the 1930s, two scientists from Yale University, Charles Jacobson and John Fulton, had carried out a research program on chimpanzees. They had trained the animals, called Becky and Lucy, to remember where food had been hidden under different cups. When they failed to remember under which cup the food had been placed, by picking up the wrong cup, they would often get visibly frustrated and go into fits of rage. Jacobson and Fulton decided to carry out a lobotomy on both chimpanzees. This was done by cutting off the connection between the frontal lobes and the rest of the brain. The result was very interesting to the scientists. Becky and Lucy were no longer getting upset when they chose the wrong cups. Their memories didn't seem to have been affected by the surgery and their emotions of anger had completely disappeared. They continued to lift cup after cup, sometimes for hours, without losing their temper. The two men presented their findings at the International Neurology Congress in London in 1935, and one of the participants asked 
why this method couldn't be used to ease anxiety suffered by humans. Fulton didn't believe that this method was ready to be performed on humans, as the knowledge of the human brain was still in its infancy. Much more had yet to be discovered. But the man who had asked the question disagreed. His name was Egas Moniz, and he would go on to win the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine just 14 years after that seminar in London. Just two months after the Congress, Moniz decided to carry out the procedure on a woman back in his home country of Portugal. She had been diagnosed with manic depression and paranoid psychosis. The result wasn't at all convincing. She did not appear to suffer from as much anxiety as before, but she was also now completely apathetic. However, this didn't stop Moniz, and by 1937, he had operated on 20 patients, and a scientific article was published claiming that the results of the operations were very promising. Another man who was present at the seminar in 1935 was neurology professor Walter Freeman. He was really intrigued by the idea that it would be possible to cure mentally ill patients by surgery. However, he was not qualified to perform the procedures himself, so he teamed up with a neurosurgeon called James Watt. After practicing on dead bodies for a week, in 1937, they were now ready for their first live patient, a 63-year-old woman suffering from severe depression. Watts performed the surgery as Freeman assisted him. They used the same technique as Moniz, which consisted of drilling six holes in the skull before cutting into the brain. They went on to operate on a further five patients in the following weeks, and just two months after the first operation, they published their report. They stated that the results were encouraging. However, they also warned that even though the patient was cured from their anxiety, they would most likely lose another part of their personality, such as 
their spontaneity, or even their spark for life. Freeman started to look for alternative techniques to carry out the procedures, as he had now came to the conclusion that Moniz's methods were far too complicated, time-consuming, and expensive. In 1945, he once again started by practicing on dead bodies in the morgue, and it was then he realized that the easiest way to get to the brain was through the eye sockets. He developed a very simple technique which didn't require a neurosurgeon to be present. He simply put the patient to sleep by way of an electric shock and used a modified ice pick which he gently tapped through the upper cartilage of the eye socket. After inserting the instrument about 5 centimeters into the brain, he gave it a little stir, as he liked to call it. He repeated the same method on the other eye socket, and the procedure was complete. It was, as he put it himself, like cutting into butter. Freeman started to market both himself and his new simple procedure. He traveled around the country in his station wagon, which he nicknamed the Lobotomobile. And with time, he became famous. He would sometimes perform lobotomies free of charge to create good PR, and he even invited journalists to witness history in the making. One of his operations was even televised. In 1948, when he was at his height of his stardom, he lobotomized his most famous patient, John F. Kennedy's younger sister, 23-year-old Rosemary. And it was during the 1940s that this procedure started to spread to other parts of the world, including the Nordic countries. Norway was first to try it out, quickly followed by Denmark, Finland and Sweden. Up until then, the most common methods of treating people with mental health problems was in form of administering electric shocks, tying patients down to their beds or making them wear straight jackets, or by sometimes even having patients sit in a bath for hours whilst they were strapped in a big sheet-like fabric with only their head protruding out. 
some of the schizophrenic patients were given an insulin coma treatment. This consisted of giving the patient a high dose of insulin until he or she fell into a coma. And after 20 minutes, they would try to wake the patient again by normalizing their blood sugar. This was done by inserting a rubber tube through the nose and down into the stomach. The tube was then filled with two liters of sugary water. This treatment was carried out 20 times, five days a week, for four weeks. During this time, the number of people with mental health issues continued to rise and the hospitals simply couldn't cope with the demands. When a person was admitted to a mental hospital in those days, they were very rarely ever discharged. So when this new modern treatment of lobotomizing was seen as the solution to mental health, doctors jumped on it. Patients were rarely asked if they agreed to the operation, but the next of kin had to give their consent for the procedure to go ahead. But in those days, doctors were generally considered to be of the highest authority and people very rarely questioned a doctor's recommendation. So if you were told that this was the only treatment that would help your loved one, then quite simply put, you believed what the doctor was telling you. In some cases, the next of kin wasn't even asked. The irreversible operation was carried out regardless. Violent and angry people were now being cured, but they had in turn become completely different people. Many were totally apathetical, and it was true that some could no longer feel any anger, but they were now unable to feel any kind of happiness or joy. Many developed epilepsy, and many died from internal bleeding due to the instrument being inserted far too deeply into the brain. The authorities knew all about the dangers and consequences of lobotomies, but decided to do nothing about it. If any medical staff tried to warn people about the long-term effects of the procedure, they were quickly told or made to keep their mouth shut. The reasoning behind this was, of course, money, as it usually is. A violent patient was difficult to handle and required more staff, 
This in turn increased the risk of injury to both staff and patients during fits of rage or episodes. Any other treatment that was being used at the time was deemed to be too expensive and time-consuming in comparison to lobotomies. A lobotomized patient resulted in a person who was much easier to handle and could therefore be moved to a more relaxed wing in the hospital or even be discharged and allowed to go home to their family. Sadly, both in Denmark and Sweden, even mentally challenged children were being lobotomized. According to records, one 11-year-old, two 7-year-olds and a 4-year-old were operated on in Sweden. The two 7-year-olds died shortly after the procedure. In total, it is estimated that around 9,000 people were lobotomized in both Sweden and Denmark until the practice ceased in the 1960s. Around 1,500 lobotomies were carried out in Finland and 2,500 in Norway. Another operation that was performed during this time, at least in Sweden, on mentally ill people or so-called social misfits, was sterilization. In the 1920s, the State Institution for Race Biology was opened in Sweden. They believed in the practice of racial hygiene and the thinking behind this was to try and eliminate all the internal threats to perfect normality in order to have a society consisting of only healthy citizens who had good work ethics and high morals. A method which found its most extensive implementation in Nazi Germany. In adopting this mindset, it meant that they had to do something about the people who didn't fit in or were not capable of adapting to this ideology. So in 1934, the law of sterilization was passed. This meant that the government could sterilize the mentally ill against their will, meaning that they would never be able to have any children who could possibly inherit their parents' mental illness. It was also done for social reasons, because they were not considered to be able to take care of children and they would therefore become a further strain on society. The government 
wanted to build a new and modern society where the collective good of the people was put above all. Everybody should follow the norm, be loyal, contribute to society, and be a law-abiding citizen. But the 1934 sterilization law didn't allow the authorities to get their hands on all of the people they wanted. So the law was expanded to include several categories. They started to target women who were considered to be living a promiscuous lifestyle. Even young girls were in danger of being sterilized. According to documents, a 13-year-old girl who wasn't paying enough attention during Bible studies was reported by her priest, who then penned a petition for her to be sterilized. But in order for this new extension of the law to be able to be implemented, the person being sterilized had to give their consent. Or, in the case of minors, the parents had to give consent. However, the authorities had also stated that in the event of someone opposing sterilization, they strongly suggested that the person in question should be pressured into giving their consent. Women were threatened with losing their children or being locked up in an institution unless they agreed. If the parents still refused to give consent, they would be threatened with an investigation and would also be at risk of forced sterilization. People going about their everyday lives were being watched closely, and some landlords even hired social workers who would patrol the neighborhoods, making sure that nobody came home drunk and beat or argue with their partner, because that too could result in sterilization. Even after younger women had been operated on, they could pose a new threat according to the state, as it was seen that they could now potentially go on to lead a promiscuous life without having to worry about becoming pregnant and this immoral behavior could influence other people in society into leading a similar lifestyle. So to prevent this from happening, the women were simply lied to and were told that they had undergone an operation to have their appendix removed. Some had no idea that they had been sterilized. The scars from both surgeries were roughly on the same part of the body, so it was relatively easy 
to make them believe that the operation was for something else. The small number of men who were sterilized had the procedure carried out on them because of their criminal records. As it was believed that criminal behavior was a trait which could be passed on genetically. They were simply given an ultimatum. If they wanted to be let out of the institution they were serving their time in, then they had to undergo sterilization. Since the law included mentally challenged people, the authorities used an IQ test to verify if the mental age of the person was below or above that of a 12-year-old. The test consisted of simple questions regarding math, geography, biology, and similar subjects. But the person being tested, who most of the time was a woman, only took the test once and was often in a stressed, anxious state so their performance was clearly affected and they were therefore more likely to fail the test. And if their mental age was considered to be below that of a 12-year-old, they then had the lawful right to sterilize them as they were considered to be mentally retarded. If they were to pass the test, they would then start pressurizing them into giving consent. In a Swedish documentary, one of the victims of forced sterilization told her story. Her name is Marta and she was born in 1930. Her family was poor, and when she was 12 years old, she decided that she wanted to help her parents by earning some extra cash. So she started to work some extra hours on a farm before and after school. In her spare time, she also did some skiing training but she didn't think that she got enough of a challenge when training with her classmates, so instead she started training with some older boys. After many hours practicing, she became really good and started to win competitions against her classmates. This didn't go down very well, and people became jealous of Marta's success. So jealous that one of the mothers of Marta's classmates contacted the mistress of the farm where Marta worked and told her to question Marta about the boys she was training with. She wanted to know if she was only training with them or if there was something else going on implying that she was having sex with them. 
this rumor led to Mehta being reported to child services. And about two weeks later, they visited her at home. Mehta's mother didn't want to open up the door, but was explicitly told that they would break the door down if they had to. So she eventually let them in. Mehta was then interrogated to find out whether or not she had had sex with the boys she was training with. The agents tried to coax and pressure her into confessing, but Mehta was relentless. She was only skiing with the boys. It was as simple as that. But after hours of asking the same questions over and over, Mehta and her mother had had enough. A completely exhausted Mehta agreed to confess to whatever they wanted so that they would leave her and her mother alone. So they signed the papers the men had brought with them. The agents left the house, but forced Mehta to come with them, dragging her from her home, leaving behind her screaming, heartbroken mother. They made her do an intelligence test, but she thought that the questions were so stupid she simply refused to answer them. This turned out to be a huge mistake on young Mehta's part. It was decided that she failed the test and was therefore deemed mentally retarded. And with that, they decided that she should be placed inside an institution. So in 1946, the day before her 16th birthday, she was locked up. The majority of the people inside the institution needed help with their daily routines, such as getting dressed and being fed. None of them could speak and would regularly be seen walking around in their own little worlds humming a tune. There was nothing to do and no activities took place. The only thing to do was to pace the hallways back and forth or sit and stare at the walls. Mehta was heartbroken and cried and cried but after weeks inside the institution she asked to speak with the superintendent. She begged her to give her a job or something to do, but her reply surprised Mehta. She asked her if she was capable of working. Mehta said that of course she could work. She had been working on a farm and went to school so she was more than capable of carrying out chores. It turns out that it was never mentioned anywhere in Mehta's journal 
or papers that she had ever gone to school or had worked. It simply stated that she was being promiscuous. One day, a staff member told Marta that she could leave the institution for a while and even go for a ride in a car due to her good behavior. She was excited, but it quickly dawned on her that it had all been a lie. Instead of going for a nice drive, she was taken to the hospital where she was forced to spend the night. She tried to talk to the doctor, telling him that she had never had sex with anyone in her life and that she was perfectly healthy and didn't need any surgery. But the doctor became angered, told her to be quiet and to do as she was told. Marta was taken in for surgery eliminating her chances of ever having children. And due to complications from the surgery, she had to stay in the hospital for three months before she was taken back to the institution. She was then placed on a farm for a period of time where she would work all day long before finally being allowed to go back home. By this time, Marta was 19 years old. She soon fell in love with a boy, and they planned to get married. But the priest somewhat smugly informed them that this would be impossible, since Marta was registered as mentally retarded and was therefore not able to marry. But Marta wasn't prepared to give up so easily. She contacted a doctor and convinced him to let her do the IQ test again. The questions were quite simple, except for one regarding the human body. She asked the doctor if this was really necessary to know if she just wanted to get married, to which the doctor snapped that it was very much necessary. Marta and her boyfriend had to wait six months for the results, and one day the letter finally arrived in the post. It stated that Marta was not mentally challenged and she was now free to get married. She was so happy, but the happiness didn't last long before a shadow of sadness consumed her. Everywhere she went, she saw children and she was constantly reminded of what was so horribly taken from her. She used to cry a lot about it until she was into her thirties when one day she decided that she had 
to somehow do the best she could to get on with her life. The Swedish sterilization law was dissolved in 1975, and by then, 63,000 people had been forced to undergo the operation, of which 90% were women. But it wasn't until the 1990s that a commission was appointed by the government to further investigate these crimes, and in 1999, the victims were given 175,000 Swedish crowns in damages. But when it comes to reparation for the lobotomized people of the Nordic countries, only Norway has to this day apologized to the victims and granted monetary compensation. The Swedish government has refused to do so, claiming it was at the time an approved medical procedure and the doctors were not aware of the side effects. Therefore, according to them, no compensation should be handed out. a weak excuse for the victims, many of which are still alive today who have to live with the consequences of a barbaric medical procedure which they were forced to undergo by the same government. Everybody has a story, and not all of those stories are clear black and white issues, even when we think they are. We wonder how did this happen, or what is that like, or what happens next? Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss, at IWB Podcast. What's up, guys? My name is Seamus, and I host the podcast Crime and Movies. This podcast is not about movies featuring crimes. That would be weird. This is a podcast about criminal behavior within the movie industry. So tune in on your favorite podcast player, or of course, the usual Google Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, CastBox, and anywhere else that you enjoy your podcasts. Once again, I am Seamus, and I host the podcast Crime and Movies. Check it out right now. Just binge on some crime. crime.